Matthew chapter 24. We will complete chapter 24 this morning and come to the end of this study over the last about six weeks of of the events of Matthew 24, uh, looking at what was Jesus talking about throughout this passage in somewhat is very apocalyptic type language, very uh, prophetic type language. And as we've studied through Matthew 24 up until this point, we've looked from the very beginning uh, all the way up now to verse 36 at where's Jesus talking about the events that uh, would happen sometime in the future, or was Jesus talking about events that had already occurred? And the, the precipice of that, kind of the, the key point of understanding the, the preceding verses is found there in verse 34. And I would encourage you to look there before we read our text this morning in verse 34. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now again, that's, that's the key phrase there in this passage, that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, we're not going to dive back into the understanding and the study of that word generation. If, you, if you're, uh, you're your first time with us this morning, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the preceding weeks where we kind of dive into that word. But really, the understanding is that up until this point, everything that Jesus has discussed in Matthew 24, all was accomplished by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But now as we come to this passage today, what we find here is really is, there's now here a moment where Jesus changes his viewpoint and moving from what was going to happen in 70 AD to what is going to happen at some point in the future. If you found your way there in Matthew 24, I encourage you to stand with me. We're going to start reading in verse 36. Again, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Father, but the Son alone. But the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. And two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not allow his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave stays, says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can be seated. As we've walked through Matthew 24 over these last several weeks, we again have been looking from a post-millennial interpretation of the events described. Again, that they were all perfectly fulfilled by 70 AD. You remember Jesus had described that this is just how it would turn out to be. There in chapter 23 in verses 37 to 38, he said, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And again, that all these things would not have, all these things would happen before that generation passed away. Now, as we've studied through this chapter, I have attempted at certain places to kind of point out some of the most debated parts of Matthew 24 and to give viewpoints of each perspective and, and why or not we believe that they would have a sound argument. And as we come to the text today, we come across where there is a place where there's, again, agreement and disagreement, even alongside of individual viewpoints. So broadly, in a premillennial, an millennial, a postmillennial viewpoint, uh, they all agree that here in verse 36, Jesus, again, is speaking not of the events of 70 AD, but of events in the future. Uh, that it's speaking of his second coming, his second coming to the earth to take home those who have put faith and trust in him to their everlasting joy and reward, but also to those who have rejected him to their everlasting destruction and punishment. Now, it's interesting, though, that even inside of some of these circles, there are those who believe that that 
passage continues on through all the 24 that Jesus still continues to refer to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But I'll agree with Charles Spurgeon at this moment, which I think is always the proper thing to do. And he says here in this passage, he says, there's a manifest change in our Lord's words here, which clearly indicate that they refer to his last great coming to judgment. So the first thing that I want you to notice here in this passage is the uncertainty of the day, the uncertainty of the day. Notice what Jesus says in verse 36. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, so the first question that we have to ask, we're talking about here that there's a change of of tone. There's a change of direction that Jesus makes here. What is the day of which Jesus is speaking of? Well, he's talking about his coming in judgment upon the world, not specifically his coming in judgment just upon the city of Jerusalem. And the reason that most scholars and theologians believe here that there's a change of thought is the way that Jesus references this event compared to the previous events. You'll notice there in verse 36, he says, but of that day in hour, no one knows. And previously, in the other passage of Matthew 24, when he speaks of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, he says of those days, he uses the Lord plural for days. So he's talking about the days because it was a whole period of time when the temple was being destroyed and those things were happening. And now Jesus is using the singular word day. So all through again, through Matthew 24, he says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing baby in those days, plural. Matthew, um, and he continues that, that phraseology all the way through. But now you'll notice in this passage, um, in verses, um, the verse that we just read, he's using that singular term, day. So if you look throughout the rest of the New Testament, you'll find that the term that's often used for the final judgment, the return of Jesus, is the day, the great day, that day. Uh, so all of those are known expressions for the return of Christ and his coming judgment upon the world. So now Jesus has directed them. He's told them about the fall of Jerusalem. They've told them about this end of the old covenant with the beginning of the new covenant. This kind of sealing everything up to say that this is now how you are to worship God. The old things have passed away. Christ has come. The new covenant is established. And so now he's looking forward to what that last and final day will be in the day of judgment. And so he refers to it as that day. Now, we have to ask the question, when is that day? Because this was the question the disciples asked, right? They said, Jesus, when will this happen? When, when is the last day? When will you return again? And what Jesus here clearly says, notice what he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, it's interesting that Jesus here, so clearly, you, you could not get any more crystal clear from what Jesus is saying here. No one knows right? Jesus says, not even the angels in heaven. We know that the angels are given certain privileges to see things that we can't see and understand things that we can't understand. Jesus says, the angels don't even know. He says, no one knows. He says, not even I know. Now, this has led some to question, well, if Jesus was was totally God and totally man, how could he not understand and know these things? Well, because it's very clear. The scriptures help us to understand that Jesus at times voluntarily limited his own capabilities as far as his knowledge in his human flesh. So he's saying as a human being, he says, I don't even know, I don't understand the things that God has set out for this day. So Jesus has clearly said, no one on earth knows, not the angels know, I the Son, I don't even know, but the Father alone. But even with the clarity that Jesus speaks to the uncertainty of this day, as far as the uncertainty of when it's going to happen, it has not stopped countless individuals from attempting to predict when Jesus was going to return. And the reason is, and you'll hear this argument, because this is the argument that has been given by some in the past. It says, well, Jesus just says here that we can't know the day or the hour. That doesn't mean that we can't know the month. It doesn't mean that we can't know the year, right? I mean, he just says the day and the hour. Now, come on, folks. I mean, that's just utter foolishness, right? Jesus here is very clearly helping the disciples to understand. It's like, there's not a date that we're going to set on the timetable of eternity of when this is going to happen really for a number of reasons, but the greatest of which would be is like if Jesus said, okay, I'm coming back on this particular day, you know what was going to happen? It would promote laziness, right? Because, oh, we know when Jesus is returning. It would promote lasciviousness, right? Because, oh, we'll just live our lives however we want to. We'll just live in sin and debauchery and wickedness because we know Jesus is coming back on this particular day and maybe a week or two weeks ahead of time just to give ourselves a little cushion of preparedness. Then we'll get right with God and everything will be okay. Because that's how human beings are, right? 
You know, we were procrastinators by nature. So we, we pushed off those things and we looked those things. But Jesus says no one knows. But over time, countless people have tried to predict what Jesus says no one can know. So Jesus here is, is helping the disciples to, he, he, in this very beginning verse, what he's doing is setting a narrative that he's going to carry out through the rest of these verses that speaks to the idea of the suddenness and the uncertainty of Christ's return. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know the time. So when he comes, he's going to come at a moment in which it is unexpected, a moment in which it is least thought about. So Jesus here is calling them to this idea of being prepared for something that we don't know when it's going to happen. So there's an uncertainty of the day, but I also want you to notice the attitude of the day. Because Jesus tells us, we don't know the time, we don't know the hour, we don't know the day, but what Jesus does tell us is a little bit about what the world is going to look like, about what things are going to look like before he returns. Look at verses 37 to 39. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. The days of Noah. Now, Pastor Wes in our scripture reading this morning read to us the description there of Genesis of what the days of Noah were like. And we understand it's, it's one of the most early stories that you hear as a child in church, the story of Noah and the ark. Now, let me just be clear that I, I hate most children's books about Noah and the ark because they predict Noah and the ark as this just wonderful, carefree cruise upon the Mediterranean, right? It's like, hey, guys, let's get on the ark and let's sail for 40 days on this wonder cruise with all of these animals. No, the picture of the ark is a picture of God's judgment. But it's also a picture of God's salvation. And what's lost in these carefree stories of Noah and the ark is this beautiful picture of Jesus, that judgment came upon the world. And the ark is a typology of Jesus, that if you want to escape the coming judgment of God, you have to get in the ark. If you want to escape the judgment of Christ, I mean the judgment of God, you have to get in Jesus. You have to be in Christ. And if you're in Christ, the rising waters of judgment cannot touch you. And there's such a beautiful picture of Jesus that is oftentimes lost in these stories. But we know that the reason all these things had to take place was because how wicked the world had become. And so Jesus says that on that day, it's exactly how it's going to be again. Now, throughout the Bible, many times when we talk about the judgment of the wicked, the the writers point back to what God did in the days of Noah. And the judgment that He brought upon the world and condemning the world for their wickedness and, 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 and saving his people out of that type of wickedness. So we know that it's just a time in which people are just doing whatever they want to do. And in fact, he says in verse 38, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, there's not really anything in particular with eating. There's not any particular thing wrong with drinking. There's not anything wrong with getting married. It's just the things of normal life, right? We eat, we drink, we get married, we live life. But in Noah's day, the people had lost concern about anything else. And we could define them as really living hedonistically. They were living for the pursuit of their own pleasure, what made them happy, what they wanted to do. And they had no concern for God. They had no concern really for others. They were just more concerned about being totally obsessed in the world, totally absorbed in the world and in themselves. And Jesus says that's exactly how it's going to be. Before my return, he says people are going to be unconcerned with the things of God. People are going to be unconcerned with anything else but just the pursuit of their own pleasure and their own passions, not worried about anything else that was taking place. So this was this cavalier attitude. Notice what Jesus says. He says they were living this way until the day that Noah entered the ark. They carried on this in behavior. The people in Noah's day continued to just do whatever they wanted to do until the day that the rain began to fall and the door to the ark was shut. But by then it was too late. I've often imagined what it must have been like for those people. 120 years Noah built this ark. 120 years he warned them that judgment is coming. 
All this time, he's telling them God is going to send a flood. Now, the reason it was so hard for these people to understand, obviously, is right because they'd never seen rain before. You know, they'd never seen rain fall from the sky. Many scholars and theologians believe that at this time, God, somehow there was a kind of a veil of moisture that had to help to, to, to help things grow up on the earth. But this was a totally foreign concept for these people. You can only imagine Noah building this ark out in the middle of nowhere, far away from water, far away from anything. Here's this giant boat. Now, if you want to understand the scale of this, I would encourage you to go visit the ark encounter in Kentucky because it helps you to put into your mind exactly what this would have looked like for this man and his family out in the middle of nowhere to be building this gigantic ark. And they're mocking Noah. They're ridiculing him. And they're just continuing on in life as they see fit and as they want to. But then all of a sudden, rain begins to fall from the sky. And then it becomes heavier. And then it becomes heavier. And then the water begins to pool up. And streams turn into rivers, turn into lakes, turn into a torrent that begins to rise up and lift this giant boat up off the ground. And they suddenly realize that what Noah had told them was true. They suddenly realized that everything that he had been declaring to them was true, and yet they had rejected it. So he said, even until the moment that Noah entered the ark, right up to that point, there was no desire to repent, no desire to turn away. And it's interesting that Jesus points out here the ignorance that they had. Look at verse 39. And it said, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man now their ignorance was not for the lack of a preacher because second peter tells us that noah was a preacher of righteousness so this entire time that he had been building this ark he was preaching the gospel preaching the salvation of god not preaching the gospel of christ as christ had not yet come but preaching the salvation of god from judgment he's saying turn to god get on the ark Turn to God, turn to Him, turn away from your wickedness, turn and trust in Him, turn and believe Him, turn and obey Him. But they rejected it. So it's not that they did not understand from the idea of the truth, but they just didn't care. They had no desire to follow after God. So the flood came and took them away. You know, a flood is no respecter of persons. A flood comes and it does not judge the class or the social status of its victims. Now, we know this very well from the tragic floods that swept through our community last year, right? When the waters come down, that doesn't decide, okay, well, this house is the house of a poor person and this house is the house of a rich person. We'll go this direction and not this direction. It's indiscriminate. It comes and it takes everything in its path. And it comes oftentimes suddenly. And so Jesus here is describing that this is what his coming is going to be like. It's just when these people least expected it, because they weren't looking for judgment. Even though they had been warned, they just didn't care. They were living their lives the way they wanted to, and yet suddenly, just as the flood came and swept them all the way to judgment, he said, so I'll come in my final judgment, and they will all be swept away to destruction. And this will not just be the totally lost what I mean by the totally lost is those who are just in, in obstinate opposition to God. We can look around in our world today and we see those who stand rigidly and firm against the truth of the gospel. They are rock hard in their opposition to God. But this will also include many professing believers. As John Ryle put it, he said, millions of professing Christians will be found thoughtless, unbelieving, Godless, Christless, worldly, and unfit to meet their judge. So Christ's return will be just as the flood was in Noah's day, sudden and unexpected. And it will sweep away those who have rejected Christ totally, but it will also sweep away those who have rejected Christ practically. That although they professed outwardly that they had a relationship with Christ inwardly, they were no different than those who were so obstinate against God. Remember what Jesus said, speaking of His day of judgment, speaking of the day of His second coming? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
Now note this verse here. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says many. We've talked about this before. I can't, I can't get past that word. Many will say to me on that day. Now remember, Jesus here is not talking about those who have just lived their life in total opposition to him. He's not talking about the, the, the utterly rebellious. Here in this passage, Jesus is talking about professed believers. He's talking about people who have lived the entirety of their life calling themselves a Christian. And not only calling themselves a Christian, but doing wonderful things in the name of Christ, right? He says, we've prophesied in your name, Jesus. We've, we've preached. We've shared the gospel. We've taught. He said, we even cast out demons. So, so these people were performing miracles, performing great wonders in the name of Christ. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who have practiced lawlessness. And Jesus says, not will there be some, not will there be a few, but there will be many on that day. I remember hearing a preacher say, or somebody say one time, he's like, you know, I think we're going to be surprised, you know, who will be in heaven, right? And they're talking about, you know, oftentimes we can have this preconceived idea of the, the type of people that we think are going to be there. You know, and we think about the good people and we think about the people who kind of have it all put together. And so this preacher was kind of talking about we're going to be surprised. We're going to look around and we're going to see all types of people there, right? Young and old, rich and poor, uh, those who were socially accepted and those who were not socially accepted. And that's very true. But you know, I think the thing that we're going to be most amazed about in heaven is how few people compared to what we may think will be there. Because we look around and we see so many people who profess the name of Christ, but yet they're going to end up like Jesus says here because they say Jesus' name with their mouth, but they've never been transformed in their heart. Because putting our faith and trust in Christ is not something that we just do with our mouth. Like we, we've confessed Christ with our mouth. We should do that. But it's not just a verbal accent because Jesus says that even the demons believe. They, they even believe and they tremble. But what it means to be a Christian is that our heart has been transformed, that we've repented of our sins and we put our trust in Christ. Not just that we've prayed a prayer, not just that we walk to the front of the sanctuary, not just that our parents were Christians and so we think that we're Christians, but that we've genuinely put our faith and trust in Christ. So Jesus says there's coming a day when he will come back to the earth, he's coming in judgment, and those who are in opposition to him will be just like those who were in the days of Noah when the flood came and swept them all away. Now, Jesus continues this idea with this suddenness and unpredictable nature because we've looked at the uncertainty of the day. We've looked at the attitude of the day. I want you to look at the events of the day. Verse 40 and 41, Jesus says there will be two men in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, again, this is another one of those interesting passages of Scripture. If you, again, if you grew up uh, throughout the, the 80s and the 90s, the, the numerous films that were produced about the return of Christ and the rapture and all these things, oftentimes this passage of Scripture is repointed to as a picture of, or as a, as a proof point or a proof text of the rapture, right? So, one in the field, there's two in the field, one's taken and the other's left. Uh, one grinding at the meal, one taken and the other left. But even amongst those who hold to a premillennial perspective, this text is not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. So even if you hold to a rapture perspective, this is not talking about the rapture here. This is talking about Christ coming in fullness and power at his second coming. And they're not talking about a, a here, we're talking about uh, the, the arrival of Christ and that one will be taken to judgment and one will be taken to salvation. Now, Jesus here uses two examples. He uses two men in the field. And so there's two men. Oftentimes, you know, it would be family working together. So you have two men out working in the field. And when this judgment happens, one is taken and one is left behind. 
You have two women grinding at the meal. The grinding was often left to the women to do. They would have a large grinding stone, one woman on the other side of the other, and they would push this stone around and grind down the wheat in order to make flour and, and to, to, for, for them to use in their household. And so again, oftentimes, maybe a mother and a daughter or a mother and a mother-in-law working, one taken and one left. Now, it's interesting. There's a disagreement among scholars as to what Jesus means here. When he talks about one taken and one left, some scholars believe that those who are taken are those who are taken in judgment, and the ones who left behind are those who are left behind in salvation and in, and in the, the promises of God's glory. Others believe that those who are taken are those who are saved, and the ones who are left behind are the ones who are left behind to face the judgment of God. doesn't really matter which perspective you hold to there, because they're both ultimately culminating in the same thing. That what Jesus is pointing to here is that in that day, there's going to be a separation. There's going to be a separation that happens even among families, a separation that happens among friends and co-workers, that some are going to be taken away and to salvation, and some are going to be taken to judgment. So there's a lesson that we learned here in this passage. There's a clear lesson that we learned that, number one, not all people are going to be saved. Because he says one will be taken and one will be left. So there is no universal salvation. Now we live in a period of time where this becomes more commonly taught and practiced, sometimes even inside mainline denominations. Not so, uh, not so bold as to say we would believe in universal salvation, but they practically teach it in the way that they lay out their doctrines. They begin to deny the, the severity of God's judgment. They begin to deny hell. They begin to deny the, 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 the exclusivity of Christ. You have mainline denominations who say, well, now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus you know, is the way to heaven, but now we wouldn't be so bold as to say that he's the only way. You know, there's, there's, other, you know, there's other paths way out there. You know, there. There's many paths to the same mountaintop. No, there is not. There is only one way to God the Father, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter how nice a person is. It does not matter how much good a religious group does. Only Christ can save you. Buddha will not save you. Muhammad will not save you. Joseph Smith will not save you. The Pope will not save you. None of those other groups. I I have no hesitation to say this morning that every other religious system in this world besides the gospel of Jesus Christ is wrong and will lead a person to hell forever. There's no shame in saying that because Jesus says He is the only way to God. And Jesus is clear here. Not everyone will be saved. There will be some who are taken to salvation, and there will be some who go to everlasting destruction and judgment. But there's another thing I think that we see here in the illustrations that Jesus gives, because oftentimes both of these relationships, the two men in the field, the two women, these would have been a familial relationship. The second thing I think we see here is that salvation isn't a family heirloom. Salvation doesn't get passed down from generation to generation in the sense that just because your dad was a Christian that you are a Christian automatically. You have to come to a point in your life where you alone put your faith and trust in Christ. Your father could have been the greatest Christian that ever lived. But unless you put your faith and trust in Christ on your own, you will not go to heaven when you die. You will not have forgiveness of sins. You will not be reconciled to God. We live in the South, and, this, and the reason I wanted to, talk on this, to, to hit this point this morning is because in the South, this is often a very, very common line of thinking. When you talk to people and you say, well, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Oh, well, because you know, my, my daddy was a Christian. You know, my grandfather was a pastor, and my, and my uncle was a deacon, you know, and I, I belong to this church over here, and I've been a member there for, you know, for 50 years. Well, those are wonderful things. Praise God that you've been a member of a church for 50 years. Praise God that your, your father or your uncle was a faithful worker in the church, but that does not make you right with God. You must have a relationship with Christ. So there's the uncertainty of the day, the attitudes of the day, the events of the day, 
But now I want you to look at the preparation of the day. Jesus did not leave his disciples without instruction on how to prepare for this. He's talking about the uncertainty of it. He's like, you will not know the time. You will not know the hour. You will not know the day, but I will come. I am coming again. And when I come, I'm coming in judgment. This is oftentimes, again, one of those things that a lot of Christians don't like to talk about. And a lot of denominations don't like to talk about. Jesus came the first time on a ministry of, of peace and reconciliation. He came to this earth in order to reconcile lost sinners back to God. He came humble, meek, and mild upon this earth to say, I've come to make a way for you to be reconciled to God. But when Jesus comes again, He's not coming meek and mild. He's coming in full power and authority and judgment. And He will crush those under His feet who have rebelled. He will come in full power and authority. Notice what He says, verses 42 to 44. He says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not allow his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not think He will. Jesus here uses language that's used in other places to describe this sudden return. First Thessalonians, it says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Second Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Revelation, he says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. It's interesting, right? Because Jesus here is using this language to describe himself as a thief. Now, he's not talking about coming and taking away things that aren't his, but he's talking about the suddenness and the unpredictable nature of it, right? Nobody knows if, 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 if a thief decided, you know, I'm going to rob the bank downtown. He doesn't call them up and say, hey, listen, guys, uh, January 3rd, about two in the morning, uh, I'm going to break in. Now, I'm going to come in and steal all the money. So just want to let you guys know what's going to happen. No. He comes in when it's least expected. Suddenly, without warning, they come and they take. And so Jesus says, it's exactly how my return is going to be, like a thief in the night. And he says we have to be on the alert because there's an unpredictable nature. We don't know when the Lord's coming back. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be 50, 100, 300 years from now. We don't know when Jesus is going to be coming back, but we do know He's coming. And because it is unpredictable, we must not only be on the alert, but we also must be watching. Jesus has to be on the alert. So we know what being on the alert means. That means to be having a heightened awareness of something. You know, when, when bad weather begins to come through the region, they send out what? They send out a severe weather alert. And that means now we don't know when it's going to start or when, how exactly it's going to be in different areas because we know how unpredictable weather is in the mountains. But it says we want you to be on the alert, to be watching and looking and being prepared. And this is exactly what Jesus says they must be doing, to be on the alert, to have it continually on our minds, to have it on our thoughts. But he says that we must be watching as well. And so Jesus uses this illustration of a thief coming to a house to describe what we need to be doing in anticipation of his return. Jesus says that if the owner of a house knew that a thief was coming, that he would do whatever it would take to stop him. He would remain on the alert and not allow his house and to be broken into. Now, in Jesus' day, the houses were made of, of clay that was baked in the sun, so it was very easy to be dug through. So all the thief had to do was wait until the darkness of night or wait till the owners leave and very easily could just dig through a wall and get inside of this house. I want you to think about the measures that we take today to protect our belongings. When we build a house, we build a house that's secure. We put in a strong front door and we put a deadbolt lock that locks the door into the door frame. We install floodlights with, with motion sensors on the outside that turn on if somebody walks through the yard. We put in security systems that uh, go off if somebody opens a door or a window. And even today, now, we have doorbells that you can put on the front of your house that have a camera that if somebody walks in front of the doorbell that has a motion sensor and it activates your phone and you can see in a moment who's standing at your front door. Now, why do we do that? Well, we do that because we have things that are valuable. We have things that are sentimental things that we have that are meaningful that we want to protect. So we're willing to go to all of these measures and spend all of this money to protect things that ultimately will just decay, be lost, 
and destroyed and have no real significance in the end. So Jesus is saying, should we not much more be concerned about the state of our soul? Because there's coming a day when we will have to give an account for it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, well, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That which we possess, our soul, is of indescribable value. And there's coming a day when we will have to give an account. And so we must be on constant watch. Jesus is saying that we make the preparation beforehand. That means that we put ourselves in right relationship with God so that we don't have to live in fear of that moment. We don't have to worry about the second coming of Christ. In fact, as Christians, we long for and look for the second coming of Christ. But he's giving a warning for those who have not done that. That the thief is coming suddenly. That judgment is coming suddenly and powerfully. And if they do not make those preparations, they will be on the losing side. One commentator said this, To watch does not mean that a man should forsake his daily task or ever become distraught in it. If a man is always scanning the sky for signs, he will not reap. If always he exclaims, tomorrow may be the day, he will not be whole in heart or home. So how does a man plow? Let him watch. One minute his eyes are fixed on the furrow. For by the terms of life, God requires that he should plow. But the next minute, his eyes are on the distant to make sure that the furrow may be straight. So this is how we're to live our Christian life. We are to set our hands to the plow. And we're to set our hands and watch the work that is in our hands as we plow the field of the gospel and we, and we plant the seeds and we do the work that God has called us to do. But then we also glance up and we say, where are we going? And we're looking for the return of Christ. But then as soon as we look up and we see the row is straight, we put our hands back down and we continue plowing forward. Because this is what God has called us to do. We must be careful that we do not allow the things of this world, no matter how small or innocuous, to distract us from the work that we're called to. We must forever be on the alert. We must be watching and we must be ready. Jesus says, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think He will. So he's saying, make these preparations beforehand, because you do not know the day or the hour. Over and over again, Jesus is pointing back to this uncertainty of time. We do not know when it's going to happen, but we know that it is. And so Jesus is saying that we make these adequate preparations before that day comes. And so we've seen the uncertainty. We've seen the attitudes, the events, and the preparation. I want you to now look at the work of the day. Verses 45 through the end. He says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. James Boyce said of these verses that they provide an exclamation, excuse me, an explanation of what being ready means. So Jesus says you must be ready. So now this is the explanation of what it means to be ready. We see first the master's work. This master put his slaves to work, and he gave them a responsibility. He gave them a responsibility to be in charge of the household, the other slaves there, and to give them their food at their proper time, to take care of them while he was gone, to make sure that they had what they needed so that then they could continue the work in the house. And so Jesus points out there's two different slaves in this passage. First is the faithful slave. And he says, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So this first slave is faithful. He does exactly what he's been asked to do. The master says you take care of the household. You make sure they get their food when they need it. You make sure they have everything that you need. And this slave says, yes, sir, I'll do that. And he does exactly what the master has asked him to do. He takes care of it. Now again, 
The scripture tells us that he doesn't know when the master's coming back, but this slave sets to doing his work and he does it faithfully. He does it well. He does it obediently because he knows what the master has asked him to do. It doesn't matter to him when the master comes back. He knows the master will return and he knows that when the master returns, he wants to be found obedient. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus also said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So Jesus has told us that there are things that I want you to do. So what it means to be a faithful servant of the Lord, what it means to be a faithful slave, is to do what God has called us to do. Jesus is pointing out this fact that to be a faithful believer in Christ, we are to be obedient to Christ. We're to obey Him and to do what He's called us to do. Now, we're not saved by our works. Our works don't save us. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. It's not our works that save us. But faith without works is dead. If you have someone who claims to be a Christian and yet their life has no fruit, then you need to be very concerned about the spiritual, about the spiritual condition of that person. Because Jesus says that if we're in Him, that we will bear fruit. So this first slave is a faithful slave. He's obedient. He's faithful to his master. He does exactly what he's supposed to do. But Jesus then points out an evil slave. He says, if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. So the second example is, is a slave who says, you know what? I don't have to worry about being obedient. I don't have to worry about doing what the master asked me to do because I know he's gone and he's going to be gone for a long time. So I can just kind of let things slide. I can just do what I want to do. And it says not only does he not take care of the household that his master asked him to do, but he actually beats them. He actually abuses those whom he's put in charge of. And then he just begins to live wickedly. He just begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. He's living a debaucherous type of lifestyle. He is totally the opposite of everything the master asked him and expected him to be. Now notice the first servant, because he was obedient, verse 47, he says, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. The master returns, he comes home, and he finds the faithful servant doing exactly what he asked him to do, and he gives him more responsibility, he gives him more blessings, he allows him to be in charge of more. But notice what happens to this second slave. He says, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites, that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." The master comes home, finds him doing exact opposite of what he agreed that he would do. He was a hypocrite. He promised one thing and did another. He said, this is what I'll do for you, this servant, the master, I'll, I'll be obedient, I'll do exactly what you told me to do, but then he goes and does the exact opposite. And so Jesus says he will find a full, total, and complete destruction. That his master will not only punish him, but will cut him in half. This, this is a, a, a powerful description of this type of judgment that's coming. And so Jesus here is painting a picture of an earthly master and an earthly slave, but ultimately the picture he's painting is that one day Jesus is returning to this earth. And those who are in Christ, who are faithful, will receive his reward. If we've been obedient to him, doing what he asks us to do, putting our hands to the plow, preaching the gospel, telling others about Christ, loving others, showing hospitality, everything that the Scripture tells us that we're supposed to do as believers. Jesus says, when the Master returns, you will find great joy and happiness in the reward that comes from the Master. But Jesus is also warning us there's coming a day when He's going to come back and those who are found being disobedient to what God has commanded will find swift and severe judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful text because there is no escape from this judgment in this moment. Now, in this moment, here today, there is escape from the judgment of God. 
We can put our faith and trust in Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, God is offering you in this moment a chance to escape this soon and coming judgment. He's saying, put your trust in Christ. Be reconciled back to me. I have made a way that you could be forgiven. But if you choose this day to harden your heart and reject Christ, and you choose tomorrow to put it off because you say, oh, well, he's not coming back for a long time. It's been 2,000 years. Why should I worry about it now? I've got a life that I want to live. I want to enjoy my life. I want to enjoy being young. I want to enjoy my retirement. I want to enjoy whatever season of life you may find yourself in. Be warned this day that you may soon find yourself standing before God with no hope of forgiveness. Because Jesus says, if you put off these things until the master returns, that you're only promised judgment. The entirety of this passage is pointing to preparation. It's pointing to being aware. It's pointing to being on the alert. It's pointing to the soon coming of Christ and that we must make adequate preparation. William Barclay told the following story in his commentary. He says, there's a fable which tells of three apprentice devils who were coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them that there is no God. Satan said, that will not delude many, for they know there is a God. The second said, I will tell men that there is no hell. Satan answered, he said, that will deceive no one, for men know that there is a hell for sin. The third said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, and you will ruin men by the thousand. The most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time. End quote. That's the truth. People say, oh, I don't have to worry about it. I've got plenty of time. I'm young. You may be. But you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, we're not even guaranteed this next moment. Any one of us, in our next breath, it could be the end. And we will stand before God and give an account of our lives. And Jesus is saying that even if you're not taken by death, there's coming a day when He is going to return to this earth. And that if you keep putting it off and keep putting it off and keep putting it off, that one day you will find yourself face to face with God, empty-handed, with nothing to offer, nothing to say for yourself, but only to be found guilty before Him. As we come to the end of this passage in Matthew 24, we understand as we've talked multiple times throughout this, that the purpose of this passage, Jesus is not calling us to, to set out with calendars and charts to try to predict the day of His return. He wants us to very clearly understand, I am coming again. And we believe that and we hope and we long for that. Jesus is coming back to take us home to be with Him. But the overarching theme of this, again, is one of preparation for that day. So if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, Jesus would say to you today, believe in me, trust in me, follow me, and find forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. But if you're here this morning and you're already a believer, Jesus would say to you in this moment, and he's saying to us in this text, be obedient. Preach the gospel. Be faithful to do what I've called you to do until that day when I return. Brothers and sisters, we may see Christ return in our lifetime. I don't know. Some of us sitting in this room may be blessed to be on this earth when Jesus Christ returns. And if we are, we want to be found obedient to His task. We want to be found obedient to the things that He has called us to do. This is really what we want our eschatological viewpoint to be. No matter where you fall on how you think some of these things are going to take place, all of us, we want to come to this end point that our task is to preach the gospel to as many people as possible as fast as we can, as faithfully as we can, 
until the day that Jesus returns. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a glorious message that you've given us in this passage. And Father, the truth of your word is that one day you are coming back. And Lord, we long for that day. As believers in Christ, Lord, we long for the day that we will see you just as you are. That we will see you coming in power and authority. Lord, to take those of us who have put our faith and trust in you home to our everlasting reward. And Father, also to bring judgment on those who have rejected you. For Father, we know that you receive glory in those whom you have saved. You receive glory in those who have put their trust in you in giving them salvation and providing a way for them. But Father, we also know that you receive glory in the punishment of the wicked. Because you have said that evil must be punished. But Father, our desire is that we would be used of you. We know that we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know the time. But Father, we know and are certain of your promise that you will return. And Lord, we want to be obedient to the task of the gospel. But Father, I pray for each one of us in this room. We're from all different backgrounds, all different ages. But Lord, you're able to use each one of us for the good of your kingdom. You're just looking for a willing vessel. It doesn't matter how young, it doesn't matter how old. If we're willing, Lord, you will use us. And so Father, I pray for us as a church today that this week and every week that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel. That you would give us opportunities to tell someone about Christ. That you would give us opportunities to, to share the good news of who Jesus is. And Father, not only that you would give us those opportunities, but Father, you would give us the boldness to take advantage of those opportunities. Lord, we want to see this county changed for your glory. We want to see Waynesville and Canton and Clyde and Maggie Valley changed for the good of your kingdom. And Father, we want to know that people are putting their faith and trust in Christ, that when you come, Lord, that you receive a greater harvest of those who have put their faith and trust in you. Lord, we want to share the good news of how to escape your judgment, how to escape the punishment of sin, how to escape eternity in hell. So Father, use us. We give ourselves to you. Whatever you would have us to do, Father, may we be found faithful until your return. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.